Bibles, if you would open them up to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 16. How much do you know about the ninth commandment? And why is nobody sitting in the first three rows? Alan and Hart, are you sitting in the first three rows? Thank you. Wow. To be honest with you, I'm a little uncomfortable now, but that's, uh, no, I, that's fantastic. Tim, are you going to sit down? Okay. What do you know about the ninth commandment? What do you know about the ninth commandment? And how is this for a startling opening question? Are you a liar? Let's see what happens as we answer that through the course of this sermon. One Sunday school boy once said this, A lie is an abomination unto the Lord, but a very present help in times of trouble. I think most of us can identify quite well with that. So when we looked at the commandment, and it seems like ancient history since we've been looking at these commandments, last two weeks, thank you Dave Sullivan, who two weeks ago preached a Passover message, an excellent job. Then last week at Easter we looked at uh, the Red Sea Crossing, but three weeks ago, the last time we were in the commandment study, the the Eighth Commandment, we, we used a picture, do you remember this? We used the picture of a traffic light. And we said that all but one of these commands are stated in a negative. You shall not, repeatedly, honor your father and mother was the only one that began with a positive. They're all stated in a negative, but yet we we said that was the red light in this traffic signal, except all of the commands turn green fast. It may start out with a negative, but it quickly becomes a positive. It's not just, you shall not steal three weeks ago. It's that we should see that everything we own, everything we possess, is given to us from God for stewarding it, managing it for His glory. Friends, that simply means there's not anything that any of us possess that we can claim sole ownership to. And we've got to live in a way with what we possess, our health, our bodies, our homes, our cars, our monies. We live in a way that stewards them and manages them for the kingdom of God. That's the green light of the you shall not steal red light. We're going to use a different word picture this morning. I've been wearing glasses and or contacts since fifth grade. So probably along with me, many of you know what it's like to go to an optometrist or an ophthalmologist, and when you get there, it's likely that you're going to be sitting in a machine that I learned this week is called the Phoropter. The Phoropter is that machine. If you've been there, you know you put your face against the the, almost the goggles, the lenses of it, and then the optometrist clicks lenses into place while you're staring at letters. If you're too young, you stare at pictures, and he asks you, is it clearer or more blurry? Over and over, clicks lenses in, takes them out until he finds the way to bring your vision to the right prescription that brings utter clarity to what you're looking at. That's a phoropter. That's the way we're going to look at this sermon or this ninth commandment. We're going to click lenses into place. Three of them. And we're going to see what's the precise meaning of the ninth commandment. What's the narrowest meaning of it? And then we're going to click a lens in and look at a little bit broader. Well, where does it extend? And then we're going to click the final lens in and say, what's the most lofty, what's the most exalted 
meaning? What's the green light, if you would, for the ninth commandment? Here's the first one. This is a command that protected a person's life. Here's what it reads. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, when you first read that, along with me, you might be going, wow, I'm not really sure. I mean, I guess I could sort of tease out little things that I'm supposed to be knowing about this ninth command, but it's a bit archaic language. I mean, I'm not used to this. We don't go around talking about false witnessing very often. But I want to draw your immediate attention to the word against. You shall not bear false witness, not for your neighbor, against your neighbor. In other words, friends, false witnessing always has an againstness to your neighbor. It's always destructive. It's always damaging. False witnessing cannot make a relationship healthier. It cannot make a relationship better. It always has one direction. It's downhill. Well, let me give you a little background. Climb inside the ancient world with me for a second. Before CSI television, before forensic reports and forensic teams, before fingerprinting kits, before video surveillance, all you've got in the ancient court is either what is plain evidence or in absence of that, you've got witnesses. Friends, justice depended on witnesses. And in the ancient world, you could be implicated for wrongdoing on the strength of one witness. They weren't presumed innocent until proven guilty. They were presumed guilty until proven innocent. And so now we read a familiar verse in Proverbs that says this, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And now you really can see, wow, that is really true. If I want to, and I'm the witness, I literally can hold in a capital trial the power of death or life in the ancient world. I don't know about you, but if I were going to be accused of wrongdoing, and I had the choice between witnesses or evidence, I'm going for evidence. Because what if you don't like me? What if five years ago I did something that really bothered you? And now your witness, your testimony to me is going to make the difference between a guilty and an innocent verdict. Now you know why the pressure was on the people of Israel to have right witnesses. Now listen, I've told you about the ancient world, but let me alter this a little bit because we're talking about Israel. Israel was different. God was very, very concerned with justice. And here's what God says about witnesses in Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not suffice. Why? Listen, why did God say that? Because the rest of the world, one witness was enough. And God says, no, you're sinners and you lie. And if you don't like somebody, you're not going to give a right report. So I'm not letting justice hang on the balance of one witness. He says, only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. You see, the witness in Israel had to be examined independently. 
hearsay was never ever allowed into a court. And any contradiction between witnesses rendered the whole evidence invalid. Don't you remember Jesus? Right? The morning that He was crucified, He was brought into the court between the home of Caiaphas, the high priest, and the home of Annas, the previous high priest, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And in this mock jury, they brought two witnesses that say that they heard our Lord and Savior blaspheme, which was to the Jews a capital offense. Except they had a problem. They couldn't get the witnesses to corroborate. They couldn't get them to say the same thing. And it was supposed to have been thrown completely out of court, but they didn't. They went on to the next little bit of trial jurying that they could. See, a person who was convicted of being a false witness, if you, were, if you were proven to be a false witness, then that man would have to share the same fate as the one that was on trial. If it was a capital offense, then the false witness friends would be put to death. If the wrongly accused would have suffered 40 lashes, the false witness, in this case, would have had to suffer 80 lashes. But let me give you one more note on the idea of justice in God's mind as He lays out the law for Israel. If it was a capital offense that led to stoning, then the lead witness would have to be the one, if you remember a few weeks ago, I told you this is how they stoned, would have to be the one that threw the guilty one off of a precipice that was twice the person's height. If he was a six-footer, it was a 12-foot precipice. The lead witness would have to throw them off the precipice, and if the fall didn't kill the person, it was the lead witness to be the first one to roll the boulder down upon him. You see, God wanted the weight of death and life to be upon the shoulders of the witness so that they would know the awful penalty of lying from the stand. What I'm trying to impress upon you is this. God knew that honesty was crucial to justice and God is very, very concerned with justice. And it brings new meaning to us when we read Proverbs 6 and find out that there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. And here's the seventh, a false witness who breathes out lies. You see, as we are sitting here right now and you're exhaling carbon dioxide, God says a false witness exhales nothing but lies. And it leads us to the second lens that we're going to click into place. Here is the first one. God's ninth commandment to us was to protect our neighbor. It was to safeguard our witness regarding our neighbor, and particularly and most narrowly in a trial sense. But now, the command broadens. And we see that it forbids lying in all of its forms. And let me tell you about a little story of mine in 1987. I went to Liberty University. And at Liberty University, if you wanted, at that time, if you wanted to move off campus, you had to be 21 years of, old, 21 years of age. My best friends, Roger and Mike, were moving off campus in an apartment. They wanted me to go with them. The problem was they were 21, I was 20. It's fall, it's August 1987. I wasn't going to turn 21 until November of that year. 
But I knew the rule. I knew the law. I knew I couldn't get off campus if I was only 20. So it came time to register. And I walked into that multi-purpose room. And I walked in determined, I'm going to find a way off campus. I don't care if I have to lie. And I took the registration form on the table A through D. I picked it up in the first line after your name was your date, your, your age, and I put 21. And I'm feeling terrible. I'm also feeling a bit anxious. Lying was grounds for expulsion at Liberty. The next line down, date of birth, and I was feeling so bad about lying about my age that I couldn't get myself to do it twice, so I put my normal date of birth, 11 666, and then I filled out the rest of registration, and I handed it in, and I'm shaking, and I'm praying, believe it or not, I'm praying, God, please, I know I've lied, would you please turn a blind eye of that lady so she won't catch this. Can you believe I had the audacity to pray that? She reads the paper, she's looking over the form, and to my utter terror, I see her eyebrows scrunch up to her hairline and I knew I'm dead. She doesn't even talk to me. She calls over one of the deans of the college. And I I might as well just put my hands out for handcuffs. He comes over. He looks at the information. His eyebrows go up. He looks at me and says, Tim, how old are you? And I said, 21. (laughs) When were you born? 11-6-66. And I saw him look right at me for about three seconds and say, Doesn't that make you 20? All I knew to do was, you're right. (laughs) I am only 20. I can't believe I forgot. All the way to the end, I'm lying. We have an incredible ability to lie. For forms of untruth to come out of our mouths, and friends, listen, There's not anything that I know of that's more destructive to a a community, a family, a nation, a society, a church, or a relationship than lying and deceit. According to the book, The Day America Told the Truth, 64% of Americans rewrite the Ninth Commandment. Here's what they want it to say. I will lie when it suits me so long as it doesn't cause any real damage. Are you a liar? Do you have the ability to be honest with your own self and answer that question truthfully? Let me give you around nine ways that we lie. The first one I'm going to camp on for a little bit. The the first one is called lies of malice, lies of pain, lies of destruction. What are lies of malice? Well, they're easily seen in slander and in gossip. And they both, slander and gossip, both of them embody the sinful desire for power over people. What's slander? Let me talk about slander for just a little bit. Now the whole time, be audaciously bold along with me and throw your heart out on the Petri dish and let God examine it truthfully. Do you slander? Slander is one way that we bear false witness against other people. Here's what slander is. It always reduces another person's name and reputation, which is always motivated by a desire to increase our own. Now you heard that, right? Slander always denigrates, always reduces 
another person's name and reputation, all the while the heart's desire is to increase your own fame. There's an old sailing story where one day a mate who seldom got drunk was inebriated and the captain wrote in the log book, the mate is drunk today. And the mate begged the captain to erase the, the condemning line But the captain refused, and so the next day it was the mate's turn to keep the books. And he wrote in the ledger, the captain is sober today. The captain wasn't a drinker. He said something that wasn't technically wrong, but what he did was he cast aspersion on the captain's reputation and name. Even though it was a true statement, it carried slanderous implications. See, slander is character assassination. And as one old rabbinic saying went, now listen, slander kills three people. It kills the one who speaks it. It kills the one about whom it is spoken. Now listen. Thirdly, it kills the one who listens. You see, slander's not just speaking it. Slander's also giving an audience to it. Slander's not correcting it. Slander's not stopping what you're hearing. It's engaging by participation. Even if it's silence, you're giving your approval to denigrating a person's name and reputation and all the while increasing your own. But there's another lie of malice and it's called gossip. And gossip is gossip even if what you're saying is true. It's secret slander, but it's That's why if you go to the Greek New Testament and you look at the Greek word that we translate gossip, guess what you're going to find? This is so interesting. The word whisper. Come on, haven't you been in a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden they get really quiet and they lean in? You need to know right then this is not good. We're about to sin that familiar routine, we're going to pass information to another person that we don't have permission to share. And no amount of Christian scrubbing can make slander or gossip appear right before the eyes of God. Here's what we do. You know, I really love so-and-so, but it's a lie of malice about to come out of the mouth. Just between you and me, I need to tell you, no, you really don't need to tell them anything. I just thought you'd want to know. We justify sin. We say, I would go to that person, but I don't think they're going to listen. Well, what's the Bible say then? Don't speak. Or we say, please just keep this between you and me. You know, even kids who say, my parents are stupid They took away my phone for no good reason. Friends, that's slander. That's a lie of malice. And gossip and slander are deadly to trust. They damage relationships. They disrupt church community. Take a quick whirlwind with me through Proverbs and 2 Corinthians. Proverbs 11, gossip betrays a confidence. Proverbs 16, gossip separates friends. Proverbs 26, gossip is powerfully enticing to an evil heart. Romans 1, gossip is listed among all manners of unrighteousness. Proverbs 20, we're not to associate with one who gossips. 2 Corinthians 12, gossip causes disunity. It causes strife in the church. 
They are destructive. They are lies of malice. And they've got to be rooted out of our hearts. One thing that I'm trying to learn to do, because I could be guilty of this as anybody, I'm really learning to visualize the person about whom I'm talking being right there with me. I mean, I literally am trying to learn the discipline and saying, they're standing right here. Would I say what I'm about to say in the same way now? Do you correct a gossiper? Do you correct one who slanders firmly but graciously? Because it's as wrong to listen to gossip and slander as it is to speak it. And if you have gossiped and slandered, you want to know the fastest way to learn to stop? Go and confess it to that person. I guarantee you it will change your life. Well, that's only the lie of malice. Let me give you a few more. There's the lie of fear. We're all capable of the lie of fear. It's where we try and escape the consequences of something that we've done. I did this in 1987. I did it even when I was a little boy with Mr. Warner, my next-door neighbor's favorite golf club that I borrowed without permission, hitting balls in the lower field until finally I hit the ground enough and it snapped the club in half. What would Christ want me to do? It would be to go confess and admit and make restitution, but not nine-year-old Tim Ackley. I shoved it back in the golf bag and ran up to the house and was called back down a few hours later and finally had it to my shame and humiliation. Confess it out of fear. The lie of fear, the lie of carelessness, where we become actually indifferent to inaccuracies. It doesn't matter if what we're saying anymore doesn't really represent truth and accuracy. We're just so used to it, we'll just say anything. The lie of exaggeration, where we tend to tell them an experience that casts us in the best light possible. By the way, did you know that in a survey of 3 million job applicants, nearly 50% of American resumes contained one or more lies? There's the lie for profit. We all see through advertising. We see this in advertising all the time. The lie of silence. Do you know that you can even lie in silence where you want to avoid trouble so you say or do nothing and indicate unwittingly perhaps your approval? There's the lie of the half-truth where we slant or twist things in a way to give ourselves an advantage. There, we even lie to ourselves. I mean, how many times have we heard the story of an obese person going to their doctor and finally somebody had to say to them, you're really overweight and unhealthy and finally it was like scales, no pun intended, dropping from their eyes. I never saw myself that way until that doctor said that. I've read many of these reports. We lie to ourselves. The lie to God, though, is the worst and final example. We actually think that we can conceal the truth from God. We make promises to Him that we don't keep. And we even act and we pray as if we love Him more than we actually do. Now listen, lying is not alien to the Scriptures. It's filled with examples of lying. And when you get to Psalm 141, and you can really see the heart saying, God, set a guard over my mouth. 
keep watch over the door of my lips. I can't stop lying. So are you a liar? Well, let me click one more lens into place. It's the third one. This is a command that's more than just protecting our neighbor. It's more than just not lying. It's a command that upholds our witness of Jesus Christ. You see, the first lens was obvious. We're talking about false witness. It's courtroom language. The second one's convicting. We're talking about lying. And friends, listen, no child of God should ever lie. There's never a justifiable reason. You want to answer the question of our subtitled series, How Should the Redeemed of God Live? Well, we should live always speaking the truth. But the third lens brings the beauty and the clarity to the ninth commandment. And all of a sudden here, look at me, all of a sudden the ninth commandment that's going horizontal against your neighbor flips vertical and it becomes a moment of worship. You see, the subject of witnessing and witnesses is all through the Bible. God the Father is a witness to Jesus Christ, the Bible says. The Spirit of God is a witness to Jesus Christ, John 15 says. The Word of God is a witness to Jesus Christ, the Bible says. Jesus even says He bore witness to Himself. He's called the faithful and true witness in Revelation 3. In fact, Romans 1 says that the entire creation witnesses to Jesus Christ. What we're about to do in, in communion with bread and juice, both of them are witnesses to Jesus Christ, His body and blood. And then we get to a verse in Acts that literally, or metaphorically perhaps, explodes the church out into the world. Did you read this last week? At a monster truck rally, part of the entertainment was a young 20-something-year-old man that was going to be shot out of a cannon into a safety net. Something went wrong. He shot out of the cannon to his death. The church was shot out of the cannon of their homes in this verse, out into the world. And here's what it says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of of the earth. Look at what it says. Each believer is a witness to Jesus Christ. But friends, I've got to tell you something. There's something incredibly interesting about that word witnesses and that passion and that, that verse. Look behind me and you'll see it. The Greek for witnesses is martus. The English translation is martyr. That's what a witness is, is a martyr. And most of us probably think that a martyr is somebody that dies for a cause. That's really not the definition of martyr. Here it is. It's someone who remembers something and tells others about it. That's what a martyr is. In short, that martyr is a witness. And we're martyrs for Jesus. We're witnesses for Jesus when we tell people about our salvation in Christ. And as we live out that salvation and love towards one another, that's the whole purpose of the new commandment. We celebrated it two, two Thursdays ago. Maundy Thursday. Maundy means mandate in Latin. The new command that Jesus gave in that upper room in John 13. 
And he says this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also, you also are to love one another. Here's the witnessing language. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Friends, this is why we guard love in this church. This is why we guard unity in this church. If we can't love one another, it short circuits our witnessing. I mean, come on, why would the world take notice of what we're testifying of if we don't even love one another? Jesus lives in you, you don't love one another, and you want me to be invited into that? The only way a church has the power of its proclamation is if the Spirit of God is moving it and if it's reinforced by the testimony of love. This is why every communion, almost every month, I pause and remind you that if you've got a relationship that you've not yet tried to reconcile, then don't take communion in an unworthy manner, manner. Rather, be motivated to go and immediately, immediately go and make it right as far as it depends on you. That's what the Bible says. Be at peace with all men as far as it depends on you. John Frame, a theologian, said this, witnessing is not so much what we do as what we are. Did you catch that distinction? It's not so much as what we do as what we are. The way we speak, the way we live, the way we relate, act as witnesses, act as martyrs, people who know something and then tell others about it. Friends, did you know that Israel had an incredibly important law in their books that guarded justice. If you remember weeks ago in this series, I told you that the day of trial, they would send a runner through the city. And that runner would holler out and shout out and ask and invite anybody who had fresh evidence that could lead toward the innocence of the one accused, make your way to the court, Give the evidence because there is nothing worse to the mind of Israel than somebody to be put to death unjustly. So they put a law in the books. It's found in Leviticus 5.1. If anyone sins and that he hears that public call to go testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, and yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. If that person goes by your house and says, come to the court if you know any evidence that can prove innocence to so-and-so and you don't go to the court out of fear, out of intimidation, out of irresponsibility, you will share in his iniquity. What are the implications for us? Especially regarding the ninth commandment. Now I want you to think on this with me. If you know the truth of the gospel, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that He died on the cross in your place to do what you could not do through your works and through your efforts. To bring you out of death and to bury your old nature under the waters like He did to Egypt's army and bring you into life. And you know that. 
and you remember that, and you do not tell others about it, the law of Leviticus 5 implicates you in their iniquity. How lightly we treat that. Who comes to mind right now when I ask you this question? Is there somebody in your life that you know you need to share the Gospel with? Whose face just came to your mind? What are you willing to do as a martyr for Jesus? Because out of fear and out of concern and out of irresponsibility and out of laziness, all four that I am certainly, certainly guilty of many, many times, out of all of those, if we do not speak as a martyr and as a witness for Jesus, we will share in the responsibility of that person's eternal destination. We are Christ's witnesses. And if you want to find the quintessential, most extreme example of bearing false witness against a neighbor, then it's to withhold the only source of salvation from them by not testifying of Jesus Christ. You can't hate a neighbor worse than that. Friends, we've got to testify. We've got to leave here today and not think about it because more than likely, as we think about it, we'll lose the weight of the scriptural motivation and we'll find reasons for putting it off. It's not any longer about thinking. It's about responding in obedience and upholding the Ninth Commandment. The green light of the Ninth Commandment is not like the red light. The red light is you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The green light is you've got to testify and be a martyr and tell your neighbor about Jesus Christ. We need to be people of God who protect our neighbors, those who come into our lives. And there never, ever is any allowance for white lies or fingers crossed behind our backs, or telling harmless stories and fibs, is all what put Jesus on the cross. Never should there ever be a lie coming out of the people of God's mouths. But more than just not tearing people down, and more than not just lying to people, there's got to be a building of people up, and there's got to be a coming for our neighbor. And you come for your neighbor bearing the role of a martyr, remembering what Jesus has done in you and telling them the good news. Can you imagine the life of Jesus? Friends, Jesus did what we couldn't. He took all ten of these commands and lived them to their fullest potential, never breaking one of them. Never did Jesus lie. Never any of those nine or ten forms of lying come out of his mouth. He never gave an audience to slander. He never gave an audience and an ear to gossip. And he lived not only proclaiming what he knew was to be true as a witness, he lived fully in the form of a martyr, laying his life down for what he believed, even to the point of death. Jesus fulfills the ninth commandment. And you're likely, like me, sitting there going, I have failed 
so many times in just this one command. Thank God for his mercy. And for his promise that he lives in us to help us live the Ten Commandments to the point where we are the redeemed people of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the example that he set for us. Thank you for the ninth command. Lord, I thank you that you have more than likely, I know you have for me, Lord, you have so beautified this command to me. It is so much more than just not lying. It's about telling the truth. Always. It's about being a faithful witness and a martyr of yours, God. Knowing a truth and telling others about it. Would you give us the conviction to live this out and give us the strength through Jesus Christ. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.